Welcome. Welcome to Conversations in Compassion, a podcast by Dignity May, a program of Agape. And made possible by the contributions to Agape. Thank you. This is a different podcast. Instead of interviews, we have conversations. This is my attempt to demonstrate examples of what I call compassionate conversation. Through these conversations, I hope to address the discord in our families, in our communities, and in ourselves. And finally, to focus on the greatest need of our time, the need for compassion. I really... Um, invite you to listen to this incredible podcast about seeing beyond and moving the agenda, having deeper conversations about what it must be like for people to suffer from a poverty and substance use and misuse. I really hear in the whisper of Lacey's voice the powerful oppression of poverty and how this tiny, beautiful little girl found a way, found a way through it, even when she was distracted. Enjoy. Lacey, thank you. What I really uh, invited you to do is have a conversation with me about this issue of alcohol and other drug uh, care that we do for people who struggle. And uh, I had this wonderful conversation with you a few weeks ago, and I wanted to continue that kind of conversation. So I'd love to get your view when we talk about alcohol and drug care. So I think we've come a long way in, you know, the last decade or so with recognizing that we need treatment rather than incarceration. We're moving toward decriminalization. Um, we have more treatment services, more sober houses, um, more agencies willing to establish those programs within their organizations. I think the one thing that continues to be missing is the view on social determinants of health because we can provide treatment and we can bring people to a place where they may feel ready to reintegrate back into wherever they left off in their lives. Um, but when historically you have criminal convictions and, you know, your credit score may not be as desirable and maybe you are unable to seek gainful employment because of a criminal history, um, 
And a variety of other things like. Well, you, you first to just um, kind of hold us there for a second. And you, you can see that we've moved, mm-hmm. you know, that, that we've developed a bit more compassion around the illness itself. And then there's so much still separation. It's like uh, the whole uh, idea of looking at a person in a whole um, in integrative way is still missing. It's sort of like that illness is over here, bad credit, the ability to get on your feet, good employment, meaningful work. You know, these things are still missing in the conversation. Yeah, in a lot of ways, I think they still are. You know, there's federal financial aid restrictions on accessing resources to, you know, move into higher education. Um, Workforces, you know, we're we're moving more toward recovery-ready workforces, and there's a lot of um, different businesses that are on board with supporting, quote-unquote, giving people a chance. And even that language I struggle with. Mm. Um, but, you know, I think if you're looking at social determinants of health and equity and inclusion, it needs to be more than just a medical model view of treatment, Mm. um, for recovery. Mm. It really starts to look at a, a larger context in which every human being doesn't matter whether they have this illness or others, it becomes a human condition. I have this, uh, can I switch a little bit here? Why your interest in this? So I'm a person that grew up in generational poverty and my family struggled obviously in poverty and also the community was very rural. Um, There wasn't a lot of opportunity and there was a lot of substance use and it was just normal. Right. Mm-hmm. It was everybody used, everybody, quote unquote, partied. It's just what we did. And it was more abnormal not to use substances or to, you know, go to pit parties or whatever, whatever we were doing. And I think there's a lot of reason behind that. We were, you know, in a very isolated part of Maine and there's not a lot of opportunities. So when you're thinking about access to education, access to meaningful employment, um, access to just opportunity in general or exposure to different, the arts or culture and things like that, there just, there wasn't anything. And so that's what we had to do. And when I moved out of that community and moved to Portland, I was just like, shocked at the level of recovery community in Portland. It was really beautiful to see, Mm. you know, the recovery community center and all of the sober houses and the residential facilities, just everything, you know, all of the things, all of the AA meetings, all the NA meetings, recovery, Dharma, um, Mm. you know, just so many options. And when I compared that to my home community at the time, there wasn't even one sober house. Mm. There might have been a couple AA meetings a week. Um, there was no Naranon meeting. So for the affected other, there was nothing for you know the loved ones, the family members. And 
I just sort of made it kind of my mission to involve myself in elevating mm. um, and raising awareness and reducing stigma and providing people with more of the opportunities that they needed to heal on a macro level. I think a lot of people enter social work to become clinicians and they might go into private practice and they're working directly with the individual in direct practice. And I think, you know, a lot of what we've done wrong in our profession is there's a wonderful book called Unfaithful Angels. And it's how we sold our soul when we adopted the DSM and started diagnosing and providing clinical treatment. And I'm not dismissing the importance of that. It's just as important. But I think what we did do was move away from grassroots organizing and community advocacy work and legislative work. And I, I often find myself pondering like, like, what if, what if we hadn't become mm. clinical and what if we had stayed, you know, working in communities and directly with groups rather than individuals, if we would have made more progress. Mm. You um, grew up in a community and you cared and you were really clear about how much you cared about it. And uh, you could see what the mill or the poverty or the lack of jobs. Or the, the, and you talked about, you know, like the poverty created the substance use. And that you felt like nobody's going to come and deal with the issues of poverty they're going to come and deal with the issues of economic development. They're going to pick away at the people who stepped over the line around their alcohol and drug use. But they're not going to talk about poverty. Dr. Donna Beagle says um, something along the lines of stop waging the war on the people living in poverty and wage it on poverty itself. Mm. And I think that's relevant to also people struggling with substance use. Yeah. Um, yeah, the community was very impoverished. I came from a long line of people who worked at the same mill, mm. Um, mm. generation after generation of family members, their children, their children's children. And I just remember at a very young age having that desire to escape like I didn't mm. want mm. the prescribed uh, trajectory of, of my life and mm. when I was really little I just totally immersed myself in school mm. um, and I think that that was my first addiction was achieving and you know being the best I could be at everything I did but then when I reached high school um, I got distracted by a number of things and, mm. you know, peer influences and kind of lost my way for a little while. Um, but when I came back to myself, which mm. is part of that healing process, I was able to kind of what I feel like fulfill my calling in social work. I didn't know what it was. I didn't know what it was mm. called at the time. Right. Didn't know, you know, when I enrolled in, in college, the person was like, what would you like to declare as a major? And I was like, well, what's a major? I, I, I don't speak that middle class language. Um, and I think that, you know, it, 
it starts way back even then, like guidance counseling in high school. You know, we need to do a better job mm. recognizing poverty, recognizing risk, mm. substance use, um, investing in people we may dismiss or have bias around or judge as X, Y, and Z. Because if people didn't believe in me and I didn't have the mentors that I had, I would not be where I am today. Mm -hmm. um, and those people believing in me and connecting with me and showing me the way in turn helped me to believe in myself. Um, and then now I'm able to give back to others who had been in my shoes because I think there's something to say for lived experience and the ability to connect more deeply at an empathetic level. Sometimes when you can recognize what it is without them having to tell you. Mm -hmm. Well, first I wanted to say thank you for creating the agenda around poverty. It's uh, not spoken about. It's not really dealt with. It, uh, <clears throat> and again, a separate issue uh, away from alcohol and other drugs. Um, and it seems to be rampant. Um, and when it comes to poverty, it's uh, about a population that the world consistently, constantly doesn't really care about. So it's pretty easy for alcohol and drugs to go through rampant and we really not care about that. Um, and the people that are caught up in that incredible poverty. I loved how you said it, just generational, you know. I mean, you were aimed to go towards the mill and to work in the mill. And somehow your intelligence, your wanting to be a good student just said, I'm not doing that. I'm going to try to bring something back here, but I'm, it isn't going to be by my time in the mill. And it was hard, you know, that pathway, because mm, mm. I didn't have things that others may have taken for granted, like what guidance counseling can provide or what your parents can give to you speaking about like the importance of scholarships and this is how you apply for schools and this is how you build your resume in high school to, you know, reach the the school of choice and, and gain admission into those pro. I didn't know any of those things. And so I was just sort of trying to find my way as I went. And it did take me twice as long and it was twice as hard because I got the wrong degree initially. Um, cost me way more money than it needed to. And, you know, that's another piece is mm -hmm. when you're starting in the negative, which I was, um, it's much harder to get to where somebody else might begin mm -hmm. their journey where they're, you know, consistently ahead. Um, no matter how hard you work. And that can feel really defeating um, and disempowering. There's, there's something you told us, which is that you were moving along. There was a 12 or 13 or 14-year-old young woman who was just right on top of it at, at, in school. And there was a belief. There was almost a belief inside of you at that point was just, I... Uh, if I stay here, 
focused here, I might have a ticket to help myself and others in this community, in this family. And then something came. That's what you said. You said I, peer pressure, something came, and I just got totally distracted. I got lost. Yeah, I think it was the lack of opportunity, the mm. lack of mm. social capital, mm. the lack of um, just community at the time. You know, in the community I was living in, there was extreme out-migration and the town was shrinking and the jobs were leaving and mm. um, substance use was increasing and the opioid epidemic was beginning just as I was you know, in high school and then graduating high school. And um, there was a, a collective just need to escape is the way I might frame it um, because of just hopelessness around mm -hmm. like, this is it. This is, you know, we all had this desire, this dream, like I can't wait to move out of this town. But the, the response was, oh, if you leave, you'll be back. You'll be back. You'll mm. always come back. Mm. Um, and I do. I own a home there still. <laughs> and my whole family is there still. And I I very much cherish the path that I took to get here. And I would not change it um, for myself because I gleaned a lot of wisdom through that path. And I also worry that if we don't start recognizing the need to invest in communities, mm -hmm. especially in rural Maine, and really build up and elevate everything that we need to not just survive, but to thrive as human beings, mm -hmm. um, we're, we're really not going to see a lot of change. Right. And you could feel that. You could feel that as, as things were changing in the community, and the jobs were leaving and the people were leaving. There was almost this um, grief in the air. And you could feel it. And then when you thought about it, well, I'm going to go to, and people would say, no, well, you're coming back. And so almost this hopelessness started to come from the poverty, from the way you were approached, like what majors do you want to go? Or what school do you want to go to? And, you would leave and go, what, what, what are they even talking about? Did they have a language just outside of this community that I don't know? Should I just stay here? And then you can find your own drinking, your own relational stuff, and just all of it just starting to unravel. Because poverty has that message, right, of hopelessness. And it does. It gets into the fiber of the body of the human being. Yeah, and I think people don't recognize poverty. Um, we know what poverty is conceptually. Mm. But I, I think that there's a deep felt sense when you've lived generational poverty. Mm. And when you hear another person share their story and you can say, yeah, me too. And 
it's it's this validating sense of the trauma of poverty, mm. right? And so mm. we know that a lot of addiction is born from some form of trauma right. and dislocation from connection and community and meaningfulness. And it wasn't until recently that I, like, I knew my story. I knew I was, I grew up in a school bus with no running water in the, on the back of a mountain in the middle of the woods. Um, but it, you know, I, I wore that with a sense of pride mm. and also shame at the same time. But I didn't really recognize how hard it was because my mom did such a good job mm. at making sure we had everything that we needed. Um, and what was missing was outside of the home. Mm. It was the community piece. Mm. There was this sense of have or have not in my community. And you mm. were mm. the doctor's kid or the farmer's kid or this or that. And if you weren't, then you weren't. Mm. And we all felt that pretty, pretty substantially um, on sports teams, you know, even jobs. I, my, a relative of mine um, was told, oh, I know who you are. I know who your dad is. And then wasn't given a job. Mm. Um, and so when you are have, you have privilege mm -hmm. and when you are have not it's like scraping mm. anything that you can get and then you're not even recognizing that sense of survival until you're in a space where you know you can recognize how traumatic living in poverty is mm. and i don't think that American culture recognizes how toxic it actually is. Well, and how much of a trauma it really is that it, that we can talk about, you know, children getting beaten or mm -hmm. children being ignored or neglected, or we can have these kind of conversations. They're very good, but we still have them. But we don't talk about the oppression of a poverty. The oppression of poverty is just, is stuck into your cell structure and you know you can tell by the eyes of people or who belongs to what group the have and the have nots and that even even as you've acquired more and more success you can sit in a room and when you sit in a room you feel it yeah. you feel the have and the haves in the room yeah I uh I do my best to, you know, rub elbows at tables where I'm welcome now. Um, but I'm sitting there feeling like Ellie Mae Clampett. <laughs> right, right. You know, like, and, and the other piece to this is like when you, when you've healed and you've moved from this is where I was and this is home. Mm -hmm. But now this is where I am and this is home. There's a sense of like soul homelessness of mm. I've outgrown this and I don't really feel like I fit here anymore because mm -hmm. of X, Y, and Z. And then also this 
I also feel like I don't quite fit here either. Mm. Um, and so it's really, really difficult to change everything. And I think we ask people in recovery or who are entering recovery all the time to change everything, the people and the places and the things. And, you know, we tell them that it's a choice and if they would just do this or just do that and pull yourself up by the bootstraps. And it's <laughs> so much more complex than that. It's not even, you know, how how easy is it to just leave your partner or move out of your family home if someone's still using or mm. you know just go get your own place or change towns like people don't think about well how much does a u-haul cost <laughs> do i have support to help me move my belongings mm. do i have first month's last month's rent security deposit can i pass a background check now like <laughs> all, just all of the things that people take for granted that mm -hmm. people who are in recovery from poverty and or substance use mm -hmm. have to deal with every single day. Mm -hmm. You coined a beautiful phrase. I'm sorry, I'm going to start to steal it. That soul homelessness, you know, just, uh, yeah, now I can't go home. Mm -hmm. But I also can't live here. That's exactly what it is. I just don't feel like I belong either way. Yeah, I often say to my friends, I don't want to be anywhere, but I want to be everywhere. Mm. So I have this, like, I love to just explore the wilderness. Mm. And that's where I feel a sense of soul homelessness is when I'm out, you know, solo backpacking or mm. spending time with my dog in nature. Mm. Yeah, there's something very nourishing about just being in nature mm. because all of this is gone then. And that also ironically is I grew up in the woods. Mm. And so that does give me that sense of home and belonging um, throughout my lifespan. Well, <laughs> what a beautiful conversation. I just really appreciate you. I can I can feel in the, the uh, little girl that's put her focus on intelligence so that she might find a way into the uh, to the argument, and that you have found places now where you're sitting and you're rubbing your shoulders and arms against others who have and have not and don't even know what they're saying half the time so that you might say to them could we could we just think about what it's like to not know where a meal or running water comes a person's life and they hear the message that they don't matter over and over and over as a member of a community and I really really appreciate you giving us a chance to have that voice of yours
I appreciate you seeing and hearing and feeling the little girl because she's there all the time and she is stubborn and she is fierce and um, she tends to, you know, take over quite a bit <laughs> and I really appreciate her um, mm. because without her, again, I would not be who and where I am today. Mm. Well, I love that and love that she is fierce. And so I know your voice will get heard because you'll make sure. She will make sure. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's conversation. And I hope you enjoyed it. If you like what you hear, please consider subscribing to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you find your podcasts. I'd like to give a heartfelt thanks to all the contributors to Agape Inc. for their support in making this podcast possible. If you care to join us, please go to DignityMaine.com to get involved. Thank you. Thank you again for being here. And take good care.